He said he still listens because Gamjabar was always for the little people. What did you say to that? I said, that must make you one of the little people. Duncan, that's a dangerous game. Bait the Gamjabar listener and you could awaken a beast to destroy us all. He's still a patron of Gamjabar. That's our protection. Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And boy, we got some crazy chapters this week. My God. (laughs) So thick, triple C thick (laughs) set of chapters today. Oh my God. Gosh. And last episode was fun. We did a mailbag. Oh, it was so cool. Yeah, it was a good time, but we're back at it today, diving deep into Children of Dune 50 pages at a time. And look, Leo, we got a ton to cover today. So let's get through some housekeeping and let's dive right in. First and foremost, today's episode, as always, will be spoiler free. We will not be discussing anything beyond the pages and books that we've covered thus far on this book club series. What about two ways to support the show? Well, one of them is to become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash gamjabar. We have ad-free episodes for you. And an exclusive Discord server. Are you kidding me? What? All over at patreon.com forward slash gamjabar. Fantastic way to support us. But not the only way. Not the only way. No siree. The other great way to support this podcast is to buy yourself and perhaps a loved one, perhaps a lover. Grandmother. Something special. Loved one, not lover. (laughs) (laughs) To be clear. Yeah, to be clear. Either way, check out the merch store at gomjabarshop.com. We have some custom-designed Dune merch. We got apparel. We got art. Gomjabarshop.com. Go check it out, folks. Indeed. Speaking of the patron, Case Aiken, Nate Hyde, our Quisats Hatterack-level patrons. Guys. Thank you so much. If you were items on our store, <laughs> you'd be impossible to afford. You'd be so expensive because <laughs> you're just amazing, incredible people. <laughs> and of course, a reminder that we love to hear from you as you read this book along with us. So send us an email, comjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Share all of those thoughts and any questions you may have, and we'll try to include them in the next round of Mailbag. Indeed. And with that, we are done with our housekeeping, so y'all know the drill. Today's episode is going to begin with a series of summaries of the chapters that we've covered in the assigned reading. And then we're going to go deep on a couple of takeaways and finally wrap up with some rapid fire, mostly etymological (laughs) spice morsels. (laughs) But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. So stick around when we're back We're getting into our chapter summaries. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, folks. Let's not waste any more time. We have so much to talk about today. Let's get into these chapter summaries. In our first chapter, we are with the preacher. My God, he's brilliant. I love this guy so much. (laughs) Back in Arrakis, and he's walking. We learn from an aside, by the way, that the mask he was wearing, the like fancy Ixian technology that was allowing him to see without Asan's guidance, was just a piece of cloth. <laughs> like, oh my god. <laughs> this fucking troll was on Seleucus Secundus, like, well, I can see with my whole face. He's fucking 
tricking everyone. <laughs> now, he's using the boy and the mask as a disguise. Quote, let the myth grow, but keep doubts alive, he thought. Oh, so cool. Ooh, love that. Now, Alia's put out an order. Preacher is dangerous. He's spreading heresy. So bring him in. But if she does it too publicly, she'll get in trouble. Everyone will rise up because he is getting kind of popular. It also would validate some of what he's saying, right? Like she would inadvertently make him sort of a martyr. And right. people might retroactively be like, you mean to tell me the things he said like three days ago are all accurate? <laughs> Biscuse me? Yeah, exactly. Simply making a move against him legitimizes all the heresy he's already out here spouting to everyone. Right, exactly. Now, in a lightning aside, we learned that, shockingly, they accepted the clothing from House Carino. Oh, my God. Project Tony the Tiger is in full effect. Because <laughs> Irulan was like, nah, they're nice clothes. We should accept them. Irulan, we love you. We can't keep defending you like this. This is brutal. Irulan's like, guys, guys, we inspected the clothing. We know it's safe. And Alia's like, yeah, that's what's so fucking weird about it. Quote, somehow that had been the most frightening thing of all, to find that the gift carried no threat. End quote. <laughs> I know. It's so cool. I the love paranoia. it. The paranoia. The paranoia. So... After some daydreaming, Alia notices that the preacher is ready to speak, so she pushes a button to hear what he has to say. Now, despite the fact that the preacher is ready to talk, he's silent, and Alia starts getting antsy. Alia's reveries reveal that during a meeting about the gift of the clothing, Irulan had, like, very uncharacteristically lost her cool. And although Javid attempted to return them to their meeting uh, kind of topic, he also totally failed. <laughs> he, was, he was like, come on, guys, let's get back on topic. And they're like, no, <laughs> guys, guys, my name's Javid. <laughs> and there are a few things worth noting in that little aside. First of all, Alia thinks to herself, quote, Irulan will have to be disposed of, end quote. No. <laughs> Alia, stop killing people. <laughs> <laughs> we make fun of Irulan, but we love her. Leave her alone. It's also clear that, like, this is the Baron's influence on her, right? Yeah. This is not an Atreidean thought. This thought that Alia has about Javid's point in the meeting very much reeks of the Baron's influence. Quote, Javid was right. What did it matter how they thought of themselves? All that concerned them was holding on to the imperial power. End quote. Oof. Fucking since when didn't Atreides be like, the only thing that matters is that I have power. The only thing. Yeah. Chasing power for power's sake. Another idea we touched on in the last book club episode. Yeah. Power for power's sake is a, a dangerous concept. Now, finally, after much <laughs> dramatic pausing, again, preacher, confirmed, theater kid, knows how to make people wait, <laughs> handfuls of glitter, ready to throw on a feather boa at any moment. You may have seen this coming, but we are going to be using one of the takeaways to really look at what the preacher says, because there's a lot. There's like single word references to whole ideologies. It's wild. So <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But very briefly, he delivers some very Kwisatz Haderach-like messages to Alia, Irulan, Silgar, and Duncan, and then he delivers a sermon. Now, the sermon is like 170% heresy, and it's... <laughs> at so, least. At least, and it's so bold. <laughs> it's packed with flavor, the flavors in mm -mm -mm. the ridges of his sermon. And it's so bold. In fact, it's so flavorful that no one stops him. And he finishes his little, like, heresy speech, his her heretical TED Talk, <laughs> and then just fucking walks away, hand on Asan Tariq's shoulder. Like, all right, bye. And everyone's like, whoa, what just happened? And as he leaves, the preacher really has set Alia spiraling. And the chapter ends with basically her resolve to discredit and deal with the preacher. 
All right, moving on to our next chapter. Chapter 17 joins Leto and Stilgar, who have made a late-night sand crossing to have a little one-on-one, an annual performance review. <laughs> Leto clearly has something to say here to Stilgar, but he has been sitting silently for a while. Leto is, at this moment, lost in thought, and he is just nervous about where to begin this conversation. Quote, He had maneuvered Stilgar into sharing the journey because there were things Stilgar had to know in preparation for the days ahead, end quote. Mm. And that sets us up for what's to come over the course of the rest of this chapter. Leto is once again out here maneuvering. After some small talk about Paul and prescience, they finally get to the core of it, to the main point of this conversation. Leto has brought Stilgar out here to see the place where he may die. This (laughs) completely just rattles Stilgar's bones. He starts kind of panicking and is asking Leto repeatedly if this is a vision. Is this a prescient thing? Are you sure this is going to happen? Have you seen it? Have you seen seen it, though? Italicized? Have you seen it? (laughs) Leto reveals that actually he has seen seen three different possible paths. And he kind of lays out all three of them for Stilgar. In the first, he has to kill his grandmother, Lady Jessica, to keep from losing the Spice Monopoly. In the second, he and Ganema marry to seal the Atreides bloodline. Stilgar is absolutely disgusted by this, notably Fremen, very anti-incest. Yeah. In the third vision... Leto says that he is, quote, called to reduce my father to human stature, end quote. Mm. And uh, this is where Stilgar has basically lost his cool. All three of these visions (laughs) are throwing him into a spiral. On top of that, Leto goes on and warns Stilgar that he should be wary of Alia, quote, I brought you here with me to clarify what our Imperium requires. It requires good government that does not depend upon laws or precedent, but upon the personal qualities of whoever governs, end quote. Oh, cool. Classic politics, classic philosophy. Yeah. That felt very much to me like Frank directly speaking to us as the reader through Leto. Right. They then have a really poignant back and forth about how Fremen culture values self-control and loyalty. And to sort of summarize it, in short, Leto is basically challenging Stilgar on his belief that doing what is expected of you, even if you have doubts about it, is the highest form of loyalty to the tribe. Additionally, Leto also questions Stilgar's belief in this conversation that every action should be guided by tradition. And this is a big theme that we're going to revisit a lot in today's conversation. Leto says that, quote, the past may show the right way to behave if you live in the past still, but circumstances change, oh, end quote. God, it's so good. Amazing. So much better than fear is the mind killer. <laughs> <laughs> I see we're still on that vendetta. Got it. Okay. Always. Always. <laughs> <laughs> By this point in the chapter, it's starting to make sense why Leto is having this conversation with Stilgar and why he brought him out here. He's poking and prodding the old Nabe to get him to question his own beliefs and to actually listen to those inner doubts that we know Stilgar has had ever since the very first chapter of this book. We know that Stilgar is honestly very confused about where he stands and what he believes in. Leto is mentally and emotionally preparing Stilgar in this conversation to take actions that he needs him to, presumably to achieve the golden path, as he and Ganema have discussed and are now planning for. Stilgar clearly is one of the pieces on the chessboard, and Leto needs to play him correctly, just like he did in Jessica, in the chapter we discussed where he and Jessica had that very confrontational back and forth. Leto was playing his grandmother in the same way. He's now playing Stilgar. He then commands Stilgar to fleece Siege to Burr with Ghani 
if he dies or disappears in the desert. Stilgar, completely and utterly shaken by this point, goes into full-on great-uncle mode, declaring that he's going to double Leto's guard and that the boy is banned from ever visiting this location ever again. (laughs) Quote, I will hear no more, Stilgar said. He turned and began climbing down the rocks toward the oasis across the sand, end quote. (laughs) Stilgar is kind of like shutting down in this moment. It's all too much to bear. He needs time to process this. So the two of them head down the rocks and they start heading back towards Siege to Burr. But Leto's not done yet because he's got one more banger, Leo. Quote, have you noticed still how beautiful the young women are this year? End quote. And that's I literally how the chapter ends. <laughs> have thought about that sentence for years. <laughs> it's so crazy. It's Incredible. so good. Incredible. An absolutely wild chapter that leaves our old Navy boy, Stilgar, completely flabbergasted. And it makes you think, what's running through his head right now? Yeah. What is Stilgar thinking? He's clearly spiraling. Ugh, it's just a shame. That we have no idea what Stilgar's thinking at this point. Just kidding. (laughs) Chapter 18. (laughs) Here we go. We're inside Stilgar's head (laughs) the whole time. And oh my God, there's so much to say about this. So we're going to use it as a takeaway. We're going to talk about this chapter in depth. It's phenomenal. I love this. And honestly demonstrates, it's, it's very show don't tell of Leto's ability to, with a word or phrase, really get under someone's skin. Basically, in brief, as they're walking, Stilgar's thoughts are racing. They are nonstop, just tumbling, snowballing. He's reflecting on all the changes that have been brought to Arrakis and the Fremen ever since Paul's rise to power. Right. He's also examining his own doubts and beliefs, basically just as Leto wants him to and wondering about his place in this new universe. Quote, Stilgar felt lost. He could feel his old beliefs crumbling. End quote. Oof. Oh my God. One conversation with Leto has done this to him. You're right. It's one conversation. It's nuts. It's it's really crazy to think about. Now, it's worth noting that as they walk, Stilgar finds himself repeatedly stumbling falling further and further behind Leto. He's getting literally left behind. (laughs) And the symbolism's pretty obvious. This is pretty on the nose. You know, his spiraling thoughts, his feeling of groundedness, his ability to hold himself upon his old beliefs is falling and his growing divide between him and the future of House Atreides and the future of humanity. Right. They do eventually arrive at Siege Tabur and Leto's like waiting for him under a tree. And responds to Stilgar and Stilgar's like racing thoughts because Stilgar's like, does he fucking know? Does he know what he did? And Leto is like, yeah, I know what I did. <laughs> Quote, you see still? Tradition isn't the absolute guide you thought it was. End quote. Un- this fucking kid. Believable. <laughs> it's wild. So insane. It's incredible. I love it so much. I love it. We'll talk about that chapter in the uh, in the takeaway. Stay tuned for that. Moving on. Chapter 19. We are with Alia and Duncan. Duncan motherfucking Idaho. Yo. And these two are uh, basically it's early morning and they're completing their morning routine. Alia has just asked Duncan actually to abduct her mother. Casual. And <laughs> Duncan, understandably, a little taken aback. I mean... I don't respond to any abduction requests before I've had my coffee. So I can imagine Duncan is the same. Let the guy drink his spiced coffee first. Oh, that's why you never do it. Okay. Right. Abduction requests only in the afternoon, please. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. The tension in the room is palpable. And frankly, it's heartbreaking to see this couple drift apart in front of our very eyes, like in real time here. Alia in this scene is trying to hide the inner Baron from Duncan's Mentat abilities. Remember, Duncan is a Zensuni philosopher, Mentat swordsman. The guy can do it all. Right. Duncan in this scene 
is using those abilities to, well, find the Baron. <laughs> because he totally knows his wife has become abomination. Right. Quote, Love could not hide the changes in her, nor conceal from him the transparency of her motives. End quote. And that's so gut-wrenching. Even his love for her is not enough for him to overlook this change within. He knows something is up. Right. Duncan, much like myself, doesn't give a response to the abduction request quite <laughs> yet. And instead, he sort of drifts and makes small talk about this like shitty marble art thing he bought last week. And yeah, yeah. he brings up the rumors that Stilgar and Leto were said to have gone out into the desert for some reason. Clearly, he's sort of testing Alia. He needs more data as a mentor right now to figure out what's going on. Duncan's suspicions about Alia continue to grow by the minute here. Right. And ultimately, he does make up his mind about this abduction request. Quote, I must carry out this scheme, but not in the way Alia commands. End quote. Plans? Within plans. Dune, baby! <laughs> God, what a Dune <laughs> thought. Like, yeah, I'll do yeah. it, but not the way you think that I'm going to. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. The chapter ends on an absolutely heartbreaking note. Yeah. As Duncan refuses to tell Alia when and where he plans to abduct Jessica, no matter how many times she asks. Quote, if you do not know, then you can answer before a truthsayer if necessary, that you do not know where she is. End quote. That's the reason Duncan gives to Alia. I loved how this echoed the Baron's reasons way back in the first book for not wanting to know how his soldiers were going to get rid of Paul and Jessica. Love that sort of echo and mirror imagery to the first book and the Baron. Yeah, I think it's all very intentional, right? Like Duncan is seeing this persona who's taken over Alia and going... This is the sort of fucking stupid ass shit you'd believe in, isn't it? Like this is the yeah. <laughs> this is the <laughs> bad reasoning that you're going to fall for. And sure enough, 100%, yeah. Totally. The chapter ends on the couple saying their goodbyes and uh the final lines of this chapter are just so perfect that we are going to just read them to you in full. Quote, "Goodbye, beloved." She did not hear the finality in his voice, even kissed him lightly as he left. And all the way down the siege-like maze of temple corridors, Idaho brushed at his eyes. Tleilaxu's eyes were not immune to tears. End quote. Oh, my God. Well, that brings us to our final chapter today. And this takes place in Siege on the day of the Convocation of Welcome for Lady Jessica, where we learn that our boy Stilgar didn't just double the guard around Leto and Kanima. No, no, no. Okay. If he did that, he wouldn't love them. He loves them, so he quadrupled it. <laughs> There's oh a my million God. <laughs> men around every child. <laughs> They're so safe. <laughs> mm. Clearly, he took that little chat with Leto super well, which is to say right. super badly. He is <laughs> not feeling great about things. And he has a close eye on Ganema in this scene. He's watching her. And he's wondering why Leto isn't here yet, which is, again, hilarious. You've assigned 4,000 men to watch that child. And he's like, where is he? <laughs> we get a little quote. Showing us his stress here. Quote, These twins assaulted his sanity. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> they were a constant abrasion against his peace of mind. He could Holy almost shit. hate them. End quote. <laughs> oh my God. I love that so much. Stilgar is a new dad in this moment. <laughs> like, for real. All my friends who have kids, they're like, oh, I love my kids so much. It does assault my sanity constantly an abrasion against right. my peace of mind that's so funny i i feel like that's the dad in frank herbert kind yeah. of leaking oh through gosh. a bit too <laughs> you know that's a, there's a lot of parent energy in stilgar <laughs> in these scenes stilgar's like oh leto too keeps writing shitty books 
Uh, <laughs> anyway. Now, meanwhile, Jessica and Ganima are chatting as they watch the kind of throng of people enter the hall. Jessica is troubled by her conversation with Leto. Seems to be a pattern these days. People talk to Leto and then are bothered by it. Ganima basically picks up on this disturbance. She's like, listen, you're clearly fucking wrestling with something. It was probably my brother. Do you want to talk about it? And she doesn't even really have to ask. She basically just sees right through it. And we get this incredible little quote. You don't like the fact that he knows our father as our mother knew him and knows our mother as our father knew her. You don't like what that implies, what we may know about you. End quote. She's about to tell us what they know about her. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is almost unbelievable. (laughs) Probably the most important reveal in this entire book. Oh, yeah. Ganima is talking about how she and her brother know everything about their ancestors. And we mean X-rated NC-17 everything. Jesus. She drops this bombshell, quote, He probably spoke of your duke's rutting sensuality, end quote. Oh my god! Duke! Leno! (laughs) You beautiful bastard. My god. Love it. This all but confirms in my mind that Duke Leto has a running tab on Gamont. Oh my god, yes. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Listen, I know, yeah, Yui had like sleeping pills, whatever. I think Jessica didn't take the sleeping pills. I think Duke Leto wore her out with his rutting sensuality. And that's the reason he was awake on the night of the Arakin attack. Calling it here, headcanon. They were fucking like demons every night. <laughs> they fucked like demons. Yeah. <laughs> That's how he wins loyalty. It's just through fucking like demons. <laughs> Jessica is revolted by this. She's like, ah, don't, no, ew, don't talk about my Duke and how fucking great he was in bed. Come on. You're my grandchild. And she realizes that this is basically what Leto had done that morning, but also what Leto was always doing. Quote, And that is why you both do this, of course. You are teaching me. And she wondered then, who else are you teaching? Stilgar? Duncan? End quote. Well, Stilgar for sure. <laughs> yeah, Stilgar for sure. He's like, God, all the Fremen ladies are pretty. <laughs> like, Jesus, why are you so angry about this? Now, Ganima in this whole interaction, is much gentler with Jessica than Leto ever is. She's like, you know, it probably didn't occur to him to apologize. Like, I'm sorry. He can get like that. And maybe this is the plan. Like, is this kind of like a, I don't know, like a good cop, bad cop thing? Right. Is this kind of the sense I get? Yeah. We then get a shockingly touching moment. Like, just very, like, 180 from talking about Duke Leto Atreides having a rutting sensuality to suddenly something really genuinely beautiful. Ganima says to Jessica, quote, your son left many things unsaid, which yet must be said, even to you. Forgive us, but he loved you. Don't you know that? End quote. Oh my God, Ganima. (laughs) And Jessica just immediately starts tearing up at this, as do all of us, you know, yeah. Duncan's out there with his crying Tleilaxu eyes again. <laughs> so beautiful and sweet. Yeah. Really powerful to hear, considering all of the conversations we've had on this podcast in previous book clubs, about how much Paul and his mother drifted apart. Oh my God, yeah. Their time in the desert, his time as emperor, her going back to Kaladin. Like You can imagine there was not a very deep relationship there for many, many years. And I'm sure a lot of things just went unspoken over the years. Right. And so to hear Ganima revisit that and confirm for us that, no, there was still genuine love there, whether he ever said it or not. Beautiful stuff. Yeah. The chapter ends on a very, like, strange song. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) About the Doctor of Beasts and man snails. It's a little opaque even as we were scripting this episode we left a bullet point like what does this mean 
And <laughs> I will be curious if you out in listener land have a theory other than what my theory is. I'd love to hear it. Like, email us, let us know. Yeah. My kind of read on this song and the sort of point of it all is that, so obviously the man snails are the people, the Fremen, and the doctor of beasts is Paul. Now in Stilgar's kind of mind trip, he thinks about how he, like so many people, under the oppression of old forces, turned inward and focused their attention inward and developed themselves and kind of looked at what they could do without looking outward and without seeing how big the universe is and without being able to prepare them for change. And here, Ganima's you know, little song that she references is talking about these snails that are turned inwards, like snails in shells, literal snails in shells, just awaiting their eventual death, totally passive to everything that's happening. And the Doctor of Beasts, obviously Paul, is seen as this literal god, so much bigger and vaster than they can conceive of, so much so that they only see his eye peeking in at them. He's so vast, he's a celestial being, that they just see his observance of them without being able to guess at his holistic kind of approach to life and his plan and all of that. Quote, unfortunately, our father left many man snails in our universe. End quote. <laughs> Which is just like a funny sentence. But by saying it that way, unfortunately, and our father left them, like, you know, our father was responsible for them, and it's unfortunate. I feel that this is framing the whole scenario, this idea of like people as snails kind of focused inward. It's framing that scenario as Paul shaped this with his choices that created that relationship. He accepted godhood, he leaned into it for his own survival, but by creating the myth of Muad'Dib, he allowed people to become small in relation to that vast myth. And considering that she and Leto are very of a mind, like they are very on the same page, consider earlier Leto saying to Stilgar, well, one of the things I have to do is unmake Muad'Dib. I have to undeify my father and make him flesh and blood. Because right now, he's the doctor of beasts, and you are all man-snails, basically. That's my read. I don't know. If y'all have a different read on it, let us know. Hit us up. What do you think of it? Was there anything that kind of jumped out at you from that? Yeah, I didn't have any other interpretations beyond what you theorized here. Like, your theory makes sense to me. This idea of Paul as the doctor of beasts sort of being so above and beyond people like Stilgar, these, the man snails of the universe. It's, it's some weird imagery, but I think you're on the right track with how Paul's influence shaped Stilgar, but also the entire Imperium itself. Right. Alrighty. So that is the very dense summary <laughs> of today's 50 pages. It feels like 500 pages, but what... An amazing set of chapters. Leto is out here playing games, folks. And I can't wait to unpack and unfurl what he's up to. Now, as always, we're going to take a short break, but don't go anywhere because we'll be back to talk about our takeaways from today's reading. And of course, to chomp down on some yummy spice morsels. We'll see you in a minute. Welcome back, everybody. Oh, let's get into these takeaways because my god there's so much let's get into the first takeaway the preacher's sermon i wanted to take some time and really break down first the messages that he delivers but then the sermon itself like what what did he say and what what are the sort of like layers of meaning built into his theatrics he's got the glitter he's got the feather boa what's going on so to start with these warnings the first of his warnings go to alia who's kind of stealthily watching from above. Quote, You, who held the secret of duration in your loins, have sold your future for an empty purse. End quote. And talk about efficiency with words, my lord. <laughs> in a single sentence, the preacher 
has identified two very well-hidden secrets. First, that Alia has used the Bene Gesserit metabolic control to maintain her youthful age. Just calling her out. And by accepting the Baron's promise of protection and guidance, she has sold her future for an empty purse. She has perhaps doomed herself to some awful fate. Like, God, that's one sentence. And he's really <laughs> laying it all out. And honestly, incredible. nothing starts a TED Talk better than some fucking heresy. <laughs> That'll like yeah, get you real. killed by anybody who hears you. It's great. Don't worry, though. He's got more heresy. Hang tight, folks. Oh, good. His yeah. second warning is for Stilgar. Quote, the most dangerous of all creations is a rigid code of ethics. It will turn upon you and drive you into exile. End quote. Mm. This sounds familiar. Very much <laughs> echoes what Leto too is kind of getting at in his conversations with Stilgar about the beautiful young Fremen. Right. Change is happening. And Stilgar, buddy, if you don't pay attention to that change, you're going to be left behind. There's not going to be a place for you in the new universe. That's what the preacher is saying here as well. So Stilgar is sort of getting this messaging from multiple sides, yeah. from Leto and the preacher, both of whom are telling him not to cling too tightly to the old ways, to let those ways go. As Leto told him, quote, you see still, tradition isn't the absolute guide you thought it was, end quote. Very similar to the warning that the preacher is giving here as well. Yeah. Well, he keeps his hits coming. He releases another dope single called <laughs> For Irulan. It's a warning for, quote, Princess, humiliation is a thing which no person can forget. I warn you to flee, end quote. Oh, my God. This made me actually laugh aloud because Alia had literally just decided quietly to kill Irulan. And the fact that he calls her out so immediately <laughs> is amazing. I'll point out here quickly, I think this is more about by calling out Alia and by calling out the council, Irulan was humiliating them, calling out the mm. error of their ways. And in this brief little moment, Alia's missing the point. She decided to dispose of Irulan out of spite and anger a very barren thing to do. And the preacher is saying, Princess, you're in trouble because of the things you've said and what you've done. You should get out of here. Right. Now, there's one more warning that the preacher's got to share. And this one's for Duncan Idaho. Quote, Duncan, you were taught to believe that loyalty buys loyalty. Oh, Duncan, do not believe in history because history is impelled by whatever passes for money. Duncan, take your horns and do what you know best how to do. End quote. Fuck like demons! <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> horns is just a metaphor for penis. <laughs> Duncan, take your penis and do what you know. Duncan's like, weird. Uh, okay, he said that in that order. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to pick apart here. This is longer than the other warnings are. But to quickly get into it, first of all, the preacher is pointing out that Duncan has learned this code of loyalty buys loyalty. Right. And it's not hard to imagine where he got that from, considering what we know about Tukaleto Atreides, the man he served, the man that brought him into the Atreides fold. Yeah. But... The preacher's warning now seems to be that uh, the people in power are not like the duke that you once served. Right. And that history is being impelled or forced by money. And of course, on Arrakis, spice equals money, spice equals power, spice equals influence. Everything's right. impelled by the spice, by the need to maintain that monopoly. He's warning Duncan, hey... The people in power don't have the same motivations that Duke Leto Atreides did, and you need to reconsider your loyalties. Right. Now, regarding what Duncan knows best, you know, penis jokes aside, 
uh, <laughs> you know, for the preacher to say, take this raw element of your power, this animalistic quality that you have, do what you do best. And again, Duncan's a swordmaster of Ginaz. It fucking sounds to me like the preacher is literally calling upon Duncan to kill Alia, which is a fucking way to end the messages before your sermon, preacher. <laughs> and even Alia, bold. it's bold, packed with flavor. Ending on a dark note, preacher, <laughs> that's one way to end a, end a uh, speech. So that's his warnings out of the way. But our guy's not done. Right. <laughs> he begins the sermon proper. It's not a long one, but the preacher manages to jam pack it full of meaning. So let's take it one piece at a time and break it down. Right. Quote, this is a sermon of the desert. I direct it to the ears of Muad'Dib's priesthood, those who practice the ecumenism of the sword. Oh, you believers in manifest destiny. Know you that manifest destiny has its demoniac side. You cry out that you find yourselves exalted merely to have lived in the blessed generations of Muad'Dib. I say to you that you have abandoned Muad'Dib. Holiness has replaced love in your religion. You court the vengeance of the desert. End quote. Ugh, fire. Fire bars featuring Kendrick <laughs> Lamar and Logic. I don't know. Amazing. <laughs> Let's break it down. This idea of manifest destiny. The preacher is calling out this priesthood for this belief that, you know, expanse, domination is necessary and destined from God. And he calls them out, calls out its demoniac side. De I read that as demonic nine times until I realized <laughs> it's not that word. It's a different word. And to be clear, I looked up the difference. It's fascinating. The word demoniac is controlled by or possessed by a demon or devil. What a thing to just put in there. It's incredible. Yeah. And we also get this colorful phrase, the ecumenism of the sword, which I thought was really cool. I had to check what ecumenism like is, and generally it's considered a Christian movement towards unifying the various churches. So this idea of maybe the priesthood as it's sort of unifying all of the possible belief systems that exist out there, but through violence and through oppressive use of the sword. They are literally using swords or knives to unify belief systems so that they can centralize power and control. I agree fully with your interpretation of it. He is calling out Muad'Dib's faith and the Fremen for spreading their faith. <laughs> with the pointy end. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's wrap up the sermon. There's a bit more to go because the preacher continues and he breaks down this myth of Paul Muad'Dib. Right. Quote, It was said of Muad'Dib that he died of prescience, that knowledge of the future killed him, and he passed from the universe of reality into the Alam al-Mithal. I say to you that this is the illusion of Maya, end quote. And you know what? Because we don't care anymore, we're going to sneak in a little spice morsel. What the fuck is the illusion of Maya? Some of you might be wondering. <laughs> a little bit of research tells us that the illusion of Maya is a reference to this idea in Hinduism where the soul has misled the body. So without getting too in the weeds about it or too sidetracked here, According to the International Society of Krishna Consciousness, it's basically the idea that a misled soul and an ignorant soul, quote, aspires to control and enjoy matter. However, in so doing, he continuously serves lust, greed, and anger, end quote. Wow. So basically, what the preacher is getting at here is that he's claiming the souls of the priesthood and the souls of the followers of Muad'Dib's religion have become corrupted by the physical world. By chasing after lust, greed, and anger, they have lost the path and have misinterpreted Muad'Dib's original intentions. Yeah. 
you know, the next couple of lines really like jumped out at me. The next two sentences are, quote, such thoughts have no independent reality. They cannot go out from you and do real things, end quote. And that is so rooted in a lot of Buddhist belief systems around kind of the nature of reality. Like, again, attempting our very hardest not to get lost in the weeds. I was raised Tibetan Buddhist, and there's a belief that the true nature of reality is emptiness, is, is a kind of pervasive emptiness. And disruptive emotions, like lust, greed, and anger, emerge from the mistake of attachment, very in line, as it turns out, with this Maya reference. And to the preacher's point, like, these things cannot exist independently. Like, anger itself doesn't have any ultimate truth in the world that can go out and do things. It is dependent. It is interdependent on everything. And so many concepts that are like anger can't exist independently of anything else. And all of this is to say, it's just really cool to see the preacher spitting bars from a number of world religions, like very clearly tying in some Buddhism here and some Hinduism and these other belief systems. It's super cool. Yeah. Just jam-packing all of this into the preacher's very short sermon, right? Yeah. Like these are just one or two lines the preacher is saying, but when you unpack it, there's so much there. Let's wrap it up though. A little bit more to go. Hang tight, folks. The preacher goes on to explain how Wadib himself never actually claimed most of this that's been attributed to him. He never said anything about the Alamithal. It's all just mystical bullshit created by the priesthood. Quote, Wadib said of himself that he possessed no Rihani magic with which to encipher the universe. Do not doubt him. I warn the priesthood of Wadib. They who learn the lesson of self-deception too well shall perish by that deception. End quote. Mm. End sermon. The preacher, <laughs> folks. Smash that like button. Share. Subscribe. <laughs> Amazing. I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, but the preacher loves to publicly and very loudly speak heresy. <laughs> it's his favorite. It's incredible. The balls on this man to stand here on the temple steps and yeah. say these things. Incredible. So good. So our second takeaway today is about this inner conflict within Stilgar. Right. So many of today's chapters seem to deal with Stilgar. So it's worth pausing and reflecting a bit on his state of mind. As we've said, Stilgar is conflicted. Right. He is a Fremen whose loyalty is being pulled in two directions. One, toward the empire and universe that he helped his friend and messiah build. And the other, toward the culture and traditions of the old Fremen that he grew up with in the desert. And these loyalties are even further thrown into turmoil when he has this conversation with Leto too. His worldview is shaken to its core. Right. Even a line as innocuous as, hey, still, buddy, are you seeing all these water fat asses everywhere? <laughs> totally throws him for a loop. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh -huh. It makes him think of all of those changes that have been brought to Arrakis, how the Fremen culture that he once knew is no longer around. Right. Quote, indeed, the young women of Arrakis were very beautiful that year. And the young men too. Their faces glowed serenely with water richness. Their eyes looked outward and far. They exposed their features often without any pretense of still suit masks and the snaking lines of catch tubes. End quote. What Stilgar's thinking about here is how still suit discipline is gone. The thing that meant life or death for you in the desert, these younger Fremen just don't care about. Like the times have changed and the fashions have changed. Right. They no longer wear the still suit with the same discipline they once had. And in fact, they're often wearing garments that are more about showing off their bodies and less about protecting the water within those bodies. Stilgar even reflects how the Fremen dwellings have changed. Right. So many of them are now these villages above ground. And these above ground dwellings have windows, Leo. What the fuck? Windows that look out on the landscape. Windows that allow sun 
into your home. Witchcraft. Imagine the water loss. Ugh. It's shocking. Like these things, obviously, that you and I consider very normal are a completely changed way of life for the Fremen and are uncomfortable for Stilgar, who's just not used to them. Right. So continuing this train of thought then, Stilgar ponders how this new culture has also encouraged new types of thinking among these younger Fremen, where once the Fremen were sort of trapped in this brutal cycle of survival in the desert, they can now imagine a different life for themselves. Quote, in the old days, it had been a rare Fremen who even considered the possibility that he might leave Arrakis to begin a new life on one of the water-rich worlds. They'd not even been permitted the dream of escape. End quote. Yeah. Heartbreaking to hear that. That final line especially. This dream of escape just wasn't a reality for the Fremen. And now it is. But also recall that the Fremen were using this as their the fuel for their strength. Like that was Amtal. Right. That was what made the Fremen as resilient and capable as they are. That was like a big part of their culture. And so you're right. It's being framed here as like permitted the dream of escape, which is already another shift. It's another shift away from this old Fremen thinking of this is the planet we're on. And we use its adversarial qualities to sharpen our knives. I also think about now that we're softening the planet, what does that do to Fremen culture? And this all kind of goes back to Stilgar's tumultuous thoughts as he's thinking about these water fat asses and beautiful (laughs) windows looking out at the water fat asses. And he's thinking like, oh man, what is that going to do to my culture? And the thing that made the Fremen what the Fremen were, which was that they were like resilient survivalists and they don't have to be that anymore. Right. And they were resilient survivalists because of the persecution they faced, right? It wasn't a choice. They weren't just like, oh yeah, let's go live in the worst environment ever and barely survive out there. The (laughs) old Imperium had been persecuting the Fremen for generations. Yeah. So I do want to pause and acknowledge, though, that at this point, many of our listeners might be thinking, well, I don't know. All of that sounds super awful, right? They lived a shitty life in the desert before. Isn't it a good thing that Paul came along and sort of freed them from all of that? They have houses with windows now, right? Like, isn't that objectively better than the siege communities they were forced to hide in? from the Harkonnens back in the day. I mean, this is good. This is exactly what Frank and what Leto want us to be thinking. They want us to be questioning these changes because it would be foolish to think of these changes in only a black and white way as only a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. Because just as you have pointed out, Leo, Yes, they were not permitted the stream of escape, but it's also what hardened them. It's what gave them their edge. It's what made the Fremen who they were. Yeah. But on the flip side of that coin, what made them who they were is now the reason they have gone from being the oppressed to now the oppressors. Right, yeah. (laughs) Of not just one planet or one people, but every planet and every people. So... Yes, like if you as a listener are like questioning, doesn't this kind of sound good though? Some of it's kind of bad maybe. That's exactly what you should be thinking because it's up for debate how many of these changes were a net positive for the Fremen. Right. Back to Stilgar. I do want to mention that on one level, Stilgar knows this also. He realizes how awful the Fremen existence was in the desert. It was by no means easy. But he is also a product of that time. Yeah. He doesn't know any other way to think. Quote, it was proper for a Fremen of his generation to believe that individuals needed a profound sense of their own limitations. Traditions were surely the most controlling element in a secure society, end quote. This kind of calls to mind the conversation between Alia and Duncan about Stilgar, where she goes, well, even he lets loose during spice orgies and duncan's like nah not fully no yeah like and that's what made him nape is he had a like that modicum of self-control quote 
Stilgar doesn't know his own mind. He doesn't let it run free. To be a leader of men, he controls and limits his reactions. He does what is expected of him. End quote. Oof. And I just think about that, like, for the tribe, for the good of the Fremen. And that even to the beautiful parts of Fremen culture that made them so unified as a people, that spice orgy that allowed them to kind of empathize with one another and connect on that, like, <laughs> almost mystical level. He wasn't doing that. And that's, it's an indication of who Stilgar is, which makes all of this that much more profound, that Leto's sort of attempting to reprogram him. Yeah. Reprogram's a great word. To wrap up this second takeaway, it's clear to me that Stilgar is a man out of his time. The world has moved on, and the things that he once knew to be true and certain, that he had no doubts in, have all been thrown into question. Right. On a more meta level, outside of the story, I think Frank is also making a commentary here through Stilgar as a character and through Stilgar's thoughts about the nature of change versus stagnation right? or generational divides or even tradition versus social change. Those themes and those ideas are relevant even today. I hate to make a boomer joke about Stilgar, but a lot of Stilgar's thoughts here are like real boomer, right? <laughs> Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. this is how we used to do it back in the day. Why would why would we change it? Like, what are all these youngins doing? There's like a clear generational divide that is resistant to social change here within Stilgar. Yeah. And so to me, a lot of this is also commentary from Frank about those things and about, about change and the nature of change being both good and bad and what that all means for societies and cultures and ultimately governments. Yeah. Again, the ways of the past are useful if you're living in the past. It's just like oh, such a good quote. It's such it's so much better than fear is the mind killer. <laughs> oh my god, somebody send that to the Supreme Court. Oh my god. <laughs> Before we get wrapped up in that, those are our takeaways. <laughs> we're going to take one more quick break. And when we're back, we've got some spice morsels for you on this sweaty afternoon. So stick around. Welcome back, folks. We're trying out a new flavor of spice morsel today. The packaging says etymology on it. Let's see what this <laughs> tastes like. Oh, my God. Leo, I'm going to let you take this first one because you had so much fun digging into the etymology of Fremen counting that I, I couldn't <laughs> possibly take this away from you. Welcome to my etymology corner, everybody. Uh, we are talking about <laughs> Fremen counting. So... From this section, Stilgar shares this observation about the way the preacher counts. Quote, I heard him counting coins as he paid his guide. It's very strange to my Fremen ears, and that's a terrible thing. He counts Shuk, Ishkai, Kimsa, Chuasku, Picha, Sukta, and so on. I've not heard counting like that since the old days in the desert. End quote. Wow, good job on those pronunciations. Thank you, maybe? I don't know. Might be wrong. <laughs> uh, I wanted to know where they were from, basically. So I started digging, and I found a couple of conversations about this online. And all of this leads us, as I'm sure everyone was expecting, to Southern Quechua. <laughs> that might be how you say it. <laughs> Quechua? Quechua? The Quechua language. Okay. Southern Quechua is spoken in the regions, the southern regions of the Andes, basically, and has about 6.9 million speakers today, according to the website of Languages and Numbers. If that's a bad number, blame that website, not me. According <laughs> to folks on the forums, Frank also borrowed a fair amount from Serbian and Romani, the Romani language, as ways to construct Chakopsa. But back to the numbers, it's not exactly one for one, because the spelling's a little different, but first I'll tell you the Quechua language number, and then I'll tell you the Fremen number that we hear from Stilgar. Huk, H-U-K, becomes Shuk. Iskai becomes Ishkai. K 
Kimsa becomes Kimsa, but spelled with a Q. <laughs> and then Tawa is four in Quechua, so I'm not sure where like Chuasku came from. Might be another language. And then back on track, Pichka became Picha, basically, which is five. Which is interesting. Looks like Frank took this language, the Quechua language, and adjusted the spelling to be more in line with the rest of Chakobsa. And he's using this dialect spoken in the southern Andes region as a way of establishing a dialect in the more remote desert communities. And it's so cool to see different world cultures and languages being brought into this universe. So cool. Our next spice morsel is the planet Thurgrod. Thurgrod. <laughs> My name is Thurgrod. Thurgrod demands snacks. <laughs> <laughs> From today's reading, Leto says this to Stilgar. Quote, I can remember times more than 50 centuries past. Ha! I can even remember when we Fremen were on Thurgrod. End quote. Ha! <laughs> ha, indeed. <laughs> Naturally, the mention of a new planet in Fremen history piqued our interest, and we wanted to dig a little bit deeper into it, because this is one we haven't heard about. We did an entire history of the Fremen, a two-part episode, a very long time ago. This didn't come up. So, our research shows <laughs> that there is basically nothing out there about planet Thurgrod. Not even in the Dune Encyclopedia, which is very uncharacteristic. Right. That being said, looking through old archived messaging boards, Thurgrod did come up in a post from a user named Balder, who did some really deep research and brought in some headcanon and theory crafting that we wanted to share because it makes sense to us. Right. In Frank's primary canon, he tells us the names of five planets that the Zensuni stopped on during their migration. And he designates Harmanthep as the sixth, which is confusing because he <laughs> right. only names five of them. Right. So clearly we're missing one. And for the record, the five he names are Poritrin, Seleucus Secundus, Rosic, Harmanthep, and Belatigus. As we covered in our complete history of the Fremen episodes, the Dune Encyclopedia names planet Ashaya, but... That isn't actually backed up in any of Frank's writings. So there's a clear discrepancy here in what the encyclopedia says and what Frank says. Right. So back to Baldur's theory, he points out that the article in the Dune Encyclopedia may have simply missed this detail. And that sixth planet that the Fremen visited could in fact be Thurgrod, because right. Frank himself says it here in Children of Dune. Planet Aishea might simply be a Dune Encyclopedia thing that's entirely made up. So that's the theory, is the sixth planet is either Thurgrod, as Leto tells us here, based on Frank's own words, or as the Dune Encyclopedia tells us, is planet Aishea. Maybe it's just two names for the same fucking planet? Who knows? At the end of the day, the real takeaway here seems to be Dune lore is fucking messy, yep. <laughs> and we love it. <laughs> it's the best. But that's a little bit about planet Thurgrod for the folks like us out there who were wondering what that planet was all about. That's all we really know. Indeed. Our final spice morsel today is another, uh, another good one. We got Zombie Catrundo. In the assigned reading, we get this brief passage related to Hate and Duncan Idaho. Quote, But the Tleilaxu had bought his body from the Sardaukar, and in their regeneration vats, they had grown a zombie Catrundo, the flesh of Duncan Idaho, but none of his conscious memories. End quote. So, <laughs> this is the pattern, right? I read zombie Catrundo and went, what? What? What is that? Who? <laughs> Where? When? All of the questions. Well, let's hit you with some bad news. Only time it appears in all of the Frank's writings that I could find. That being said, I wouldn't have put this morsel in here if I didn't find something. And we did discover a very similar word from the Chichewa language. <laughs> and again, I hope I'm not butchering someone's language, but that word is katundu. Katrundo to katundu. Very similar. 
Now, katundu means baggage or a load or a pile of things. And in trying to make this make sense, I was thinking about the zombie concept, dead flesh reanimated, is not exactly what a gola is. The gola, hate, was grown to contain the experience and the, and the personality of the, of the dead flesh, right? Like baggage holding Duncan, holding the concept of Duncan Idaho, rather than simply a zombie. And yeah, that's a bit of a stretch. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't know that my research <laughs> in this Dune podcast would take me all over the world in etymological research. But I'm happy about it, regardless of how stressed I sound. That's my theory. I think Katundu as baggage or pile or, or collection of things paired with zombie is a more accurate representation of what a gola is than just the word zombie by itself. And so Frank brought that word in and gave it a little bit of that Frank razzle dazzle, making it Katrendo. Yeah. Wow. You're really racking up those Delta sky miles traveling all <sighs> over the world like this. To Malawi, went to the Andes. I went to Thorgrad. <laughs> <laughs> Direct flight, no transfers to Thorgrad. <laughs> <laughs> All the flight attendants talk like that for some reason on Thorgrad <laughs> Airlines. Insert the tip of the belt into the buckle. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like pretzels? Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, we're... We're clearly losing our minds after this episode. So let's wrap this bad boy up. Yeah, let's do it. For the next book club episode, y'all, make sure you've read up until page 254 in the paperback copy or up until the chapter that ends on this sentence. Quote, that thought reduced the sureness of his knowledge and he ran faster. End quote. Ooh. Oh, shit. Yeah. What a good sentence to end on. <laughs> well friends there is no real ending it's just the place where you stop the recording but this podcast is always one step beyond logic so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party thank you so much for listening and remember whoever controls the podcast controls the universe We'll see you on the golden path.